Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Piki mai kake mai. I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ, which is all about urban bats. Our guide is producer William Ray. A few weeks ago, I was visiting my dad in Hamilton, and I went for a walk down beside the Waikato River. It was late afternoon, maybe a half hour or so from sunset, and I heard this weird noise. I kept walking, and it got louder and louder. I turned the corner and saw something really strange. A group of about 50 people, all holding these weird devices. They looked a bit like walkie-talkies. They were blasting out static at full volume, and everyone was staring up at the sky. My first thought was this was some kind of weird space cult. I figured these people must be waiting for the UFOs to come and beam them up or something. I asked them what they were looking for, and they said, bats. Specifically, they were looking for the critically endangered New Zealand long-tailed bat, one of only two native mammals in this country. There's also a short-tailed bat that's also critically endangered. It turned out I'd run into a bat fun day, an event run by Project Echo, a group which advocates and educates about bats in Hamilton City. Now, I grew up in Hamilton, just a couple of kilometres from the spot, and I had no idea there were bats here or anywhere else in the city. So, a few weeks later, I arranged to meet up with Project Echo for my own personal bat-spotting tour. We met at Hammond Park in Rivoli, at the southern end of the city near the Hamilton Gardens. The first members of Project Echo I meet are Selena Ghazali and Jerry Kelly. The rest of the group are running late. Hello. Hello. Sorry, I'm William. Selena. Nice to meet you. Jerry. <laughs> oh, he's got an old combi van. Yeah. Awesome. I would make a Batmobile joke, I but I reckon know. it's too. <laughs> it's an awesome car. Oh yeah, but I've just been bloody under it today trying to change transmission fluid, and oh, bloody someone has really reached the. Selena, Jerry, and I start walking downriver along the boardwalk through a patch of native forest called Hammond Bush on the river's edge. Along the way, we run into another member of Project Echo. Hey, Andrew. Selena. Hey, Jerry. Hey, I'm William. Andrew. Hello. Nice to meet you. You too. Andrew, was it? Yes. What's your second name, Andrew? Stice. So what's your part in this, Andrew? Uh, I'm the Department of Conservation, which is a partner of Project Echo. Right, OK. And I do a lot of advocacy for bats through my job at DOC. Right, right. That's crazy, because until I came across this whole thing, I had no idea that um, you could even find bats in cities. I thought that they were strictly a sort of depth of the native bush kind of thing. That's what everyone thought. Yeah, so this, yeah. is, this is a big learning, that's a big culture change. So how, how, how long has that been sort of discovered? Like, how, how recent is that kind of discovery? Angie de Kraut did her PhD here. Yeah. And, when, when, and she came to do her PhD from Auckland University because she'd read an account of um, long-tailed bats at Jubilee Bush. Mm. 
And we never found any there. <laughs> we never, I don't think we've detected any there since. No, but that was the start of her kind of like surveying. And then she went kind of out from Jubilee Bush and went further afield and, you know, was checking out gullies in southern parts of the city and came across a big um, maternity roost. At so how, how long ago was that? Um, that would have been 2005, I think. So it is all pretty recent then. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. There has been kind of um, anecdotal evidence, like people fishing down here, um, up at the Hamilton Gardens, people were kind of, oh, there's you know something out in the evening that's not swallows. Nothing had really been proven, you know, yeah. no one had actually taken any, um, you know, evidential accounts or monitored or, yeah, so it was quite, quite ad hoc. Andrew Steich says native bats have only survived near Hamilton thanks to a few tiny patches of native bush around the city. The reason they're critically endangered is that little populations have been blinking out all over the country, so some places were more thoroughly cleared of vegetation than others. By luck, the bats have survived around Hamilton, really, because it is by luck. They've survived in a few trees and hung on. Um, because there's not much original vegetation left around here, so that is amazing that they have survived to date. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that original vegetation, we're walking through some now. Uh, yeah, this is uh, some yeah. of the very thin, thin vestiges of original ves- vegetation in Hamilton. Hammond Bush is what's known as remnant bush, native forest that's been left mostly undisturbed by human beings. This type of forest is critical for bats because they prefer to roost in holes left behind when trees start to die and shed their branches. Native trees like rimu and totara can take hundreds of years before they get to that point, which means that bats need old forests. Recently planted natives are no good. Luckily, it turns out there are alternatives – Long-tailed bats are happy to roost in faster-growing introduced species like oak, pine and eucalyptus. Yeah, like this gully is a classic example. Up the, up the um, head of this gully we've planted eucalyptus species to replace the large eucalyptus that are going to you know, continually start to fail. And, and the only reason for that was because they're potential roost trees that would be quicker grown than a lot of the natives that we've been planting as well. Lots of natives planted as well, but mm. yeah, it was... Is the problem that the natives just don't shed their branches quite as early in the life cycle? They take a lot longer to grow. Mm. So when you don't have many trees to start with, and you don't want to wait 300 years to form new ones, so you've got to plant something <laughs> normally exotic, and some of the exotic trees actually can be quite beneficial for them. Some mm. oak trees, I love them. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. That tolerance for exotic trees means you end up finding bats in some pretty surprising places around Hamilton. The biggest hotspot is at the Narrows Christian Camp, right under the main flight path for Hamilton Airport. So let's take a quick detour from our bat spawning excursion and meet Al Belcher, who's been running the camp for the last six years. There's, we always see them flying around these days, not far off the height of where those birds are. Yeah, yeah. Usually you see them all through here at night and through the other set. And then there's a big roost further up in the oak trees, and there's a couple in these ones, so they're, they're kind of all over the park. Can we go have a look at the oak trees? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess it is the kind of trees they'd be after, eh? sort of old, um, gnarled-looking <laughs> looking places. They tend to like the dangerous trees, so the ones that are sort of hollowed out. Yeah. Um, so you can see with these acacias, a lot of the branches are broken, and they tend to rot from the inside out, so they provide these nice hollow cavities for them to roost in. Right, right. Uh, we, we have to clear them out once in a while, but um, 
trying to preserve them as much as possible because these roosts are pretty rare. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of them around. The feedback we've got has been that this is probably the most intensified site, so they've found the largest number of bats roosting here that they've ever found. Well, in, in New Zealand? For this style of bat, yeah. For wow, this style, really? For this type of bat, yeah. That's amazing. Um, up here in the Oaks, um, the largest roost was, I think it was 39 bats they came across, which apparently is a record for them. Yeah. So is that just in, just in these trees just here? Well, there's some guys with chainsaws over, over here, so hopefully they know what, they look, yeah, what they're right. doing. Well, that's, that's actually part of the problem in here is um, we're just working on a, on a plan with uh, a few organizations to get a replanting scheme in place because these, these big oaks and acacias, especially through this area, because this is probably old dry riverbed, the soil is quite sandy. Right. So every once in a while, like, like that's a good example, that stump there, you'll get a, a full-grown tree will just topple over. I guess it's sort of a, a balance of, of, um, of uh, not wanting to... Um destroy the bat habitat but you can't have sort of old dangerous trees hanging around yeah that's exactly the problem that we're trying to work through now uh, we want to obviously we want to do our part to preserve as much as we can but um the health and safety factor when you're a youth camp and you got kids everywhere yeah it's a little bit different to it just being an abandoned forest that you could just let naturally fall over Speaking of the dangers and benefits of dead trees back in Hammond Bush I got talking with Jerry from Project Zero. Jerry's an arborist, so a big part of his job is chopping down dead or dying trees which are at risk of falling down or dropping branches. But he says he's increasingly trying to find less invasive methods which keep both bats and people happy. In Europe, they actually, with uh, dismantling trees, they leave a lot of the trunk up and they cut the roosts into the trunk oh, wow. uh, branches and just leave them as a ecological, you know, kind of monument I suppose and yeah and they, a lot of like bird roosts and bat roosts so I guess that's something that people could do in their backyard you know if they've got an old tree that they need that needs to come down leave the trunk up and cut some holes in it could make good habitat yeah and that's I think the other thing we really need to start kind of just getting into our heads that dead trees in the landscape are okay obviously the safety things around you know town and power lines and things but down the road we've got an electrician when he moved in and he said, oh, look, I've got a gum tree I want you to look at. Um, I'm looking at putting a little hut under it, you know, a little office. And so I said, oh, yeah, I'll come and have a look. Went down and had a look. And it was kind of like um, some dead branches on it and um, kind of over the, at the top of a gully. And I was saying to him, well, these are the kind of trees that are perfect for bats, you know. We've just been doing a whole lot of bat stuff. And um, he goes, oh, yeah, 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 I've been watching them sitting on the back porch. <laughs> and I'm like, What? <laughs> And uh, so he'd been working in Aussie doing a lot of, you know, the kind of mining stuff. And, yeah. And he just thought it was quite common. And he'd been actually just coming home in the evening like now and just sitting on the back porch having a beer and watching the bats come in and out. I was just flabbergasted. And then he said, oh, it was really interesting one night because he had this um, kind of like spotlight that would go on with movement. As a moorport came into the big gum and was sitting there and it was actually chasing the bats. So he could see when the light would flash on, when the moorport came past and the bats were shooting off. Wow. And it was just like, you know, kind of like... It's having yeah. David Attenborough on your backyard. Yeah, yeah. And he was just, you know, he just said it so commonly, like it was something <laughs> that happened, and I'm just standing there gaping, going, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so in the end, we just kind of took off some of the branches towards the house and then just left the rest of it. Another stopgap measure to replace old native trees is artificial bat roosts, called bat boxes. 
Selina points one out to me as we're walking along. It looks a lot like a birdhouse nailed to a tree, but instead of a hole at the front, it has a narrow slot running along the bottom where the bats can crawl inside. That, if I'm not mistaken, is a 50 bat box. So you could fit 50 bats in that little box there. Yeah, they just crunch, so. your, they crunch in, yeah. Like wow. They just push up. But they're only, um, you know, kind of like 8 to 12 um, grams. Just like know? a tiny little mouse like with wings. Like the your thumb. Selena and Jerry say the bat boxes have been a surprising success. You know, the community came together, uh, schools made some bat houses to put up. I think all in all, there were 19 houses put up mainly as a tool for public awareness um, in the early days when Hamilton found bats yeah. in the backyard. And it worked. And, yeah, eight years later, it worked. And we're flabbergasted, really. Did, did, we didn't really... Didn't expect it to work? Expect it. We were hoping... A lot of people were kind of, nah, it won't work kind of thing. They were kind of pretty, oh, you know, it's been tried before or, you know, yeah, how are they going to find them? Just as the sun starts setting, we catch up with the fourth and final member of the Project Echo team, Hannah Muller. She's a senior ecologist for the engineering firm Tonkin & Taylor. Hannah's brought along the most critical piece of bat spotting equipment, an ultrasonic transducer. Um, and it basically just picks up the um, ultrasound that the bat emits that we can't hear mm. and converts it to something that we can hear when it flies around. Yeah. So at the moment, it's just a lot of noise coming out, yeah. unfortunately. Um, we'll see if we pick something up. Um, so, so what does it sound like when a, when a bat comes by? Sort of like a high-pitched click oh, yeah. um, that's quite um, distinct. Hannah uses these transducers in her work to make sure no bats are hurt when trees have to be knocked down to make way for a new road or housing development. That job involves a lot of clambering around trees and peeking into holes, which often brings her face to face with some of the bats' worst enemies. Introduced predators like rats and possums, which also like to live in holes inside trees. We always keep a track on what we find, of course, when we do our surveys, but we don't often get the chance to do extra research on these sort of things, so we always take note on what's going on whenever we're out in the field. Because, I mean, bats are so small and quick, you'd sort of, hard to imagine, like, a cat or something managing to stalk up on one like they do on birds sometimes. They don't really have to. They can, because they roost in a, in a cavity in a tree, so if a cat or predator can get to that roost and get in it, the bats are going to be still, and they, they can get as many as they want. Right. Um, but also the bats have to drink. So when they come down to a pool of water, and that's how cats can get a lot of birds, even native pigeons, do. they just wait at the water holes. They learn where the water holes are that the birds and bats and... and oh, wow, you can see it. Yeah, yeah it just saw everything. Mid-interview, we spot our very first bat. Oh, that's so cool. Did you see it? Yeah, I did. They're just on the sort of tree line. You can just see them as sort of little yeah. black speck every now and again Contrast flies out. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, you could hardly see it. It was just a fuzzy little speck fluttering along the tree line. More and more of them came out, and as the light faded completely, we lost track of them against the night sky. But thanks to our fancy bat detectors, we could tell they were all around us.
In between the blasts of bat squeaks, I ask Andrew Steich what people can do to make cities more bat-friendly places. Predator control is probably the thing. Predator control over a really large area because these bats are closely associated with bats that are out in a kakatiya stand out on the plains across the river and well up the river at the Narrows. All of them are associated, so if it can't just be pest control in your backyard. It really has to be the size of thousands of hectares, so hundreds of people, property owners, doing looking after it. So the predator-free 2050 or predator-free New Zealand, that sort of scale where you have stoats, possums, rats taken out of huge areas, that reduces it. And then, I guess, trying to cut, stop people just dropping trees all over the place. So set aside really good dark reserves for them close to gullies and rivers. Mm. Um, people want to be have houses near the river and don't want the trees blocking their view. All of that sort of stuff that people really want to be by the river and really don't want the views blocked, but actually that's really important for some of our wildlife. So mm. It's a big conflict is, is to try and manage the, the people who want to be near the river and the wildlife that's part of New Zealand um, and hoping that the bats can survive it because they really don't like well-lit places at night. Mm. Um, so they tend to avoid them. So spotlights on trees drive them away. So people who love light, yeah. that's really bad for bats. Hamilton and Auckland are the only two places in New Zealand that are known to have long-tailed bats inside the urban area. A few days after my excursion with Project Echo, I drive up to Auckland to meet Ben Paris, senior ecologist for the council. He's also known by his Twitter handle, at NZBatman. We found them in the western suburbs around Swanson, um, coming out of the Waitakere Ranges. Uh, we found them on the edge of South Auckland, um, near the Botanic Gardens, but also a, a lot of them out um, near Paramahoe, near Pukekohe. Um, we found them up in the pine forest near Riverhead, um, found them further up north on the Kaipara. Just it seems a bit they're good at hiding in really small forest fragments. And the more we look for them, the more we seem to find. But still, all over the city, like how how are they sort of managing to sort of um, you know move around the city, given it's you know not exactly bat friendly environment. No, no. Well, we 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 know a lot about how long tail bats move across. Uh, forest areas like down in Fiordland where a lot of the research has been done but we actually don't know a lot about what happens to them moving across urban environments will they move uh, across motorways will they go across harbours um, we don't really know that sort of information yet mm. I mean is there any reason to think they don't is it I mean because I know that they're not particularly fond of the big floodlights and stuff but and yet we've seen um, anecdotal evidence of, of bats flying around the pick-and-save floodlights in the car park in Lincoln Road. So yeah. um, there's, these bats can fly up to 30 kilometres normally, so we, we, we think that they could probably be coming across Auckland quite regularly, but we just don't know enough about them. We do know that where we have found them in West Auckland um, is where there's been a lot of stream restoration by the community and so the streams are really crucial for the long-tailed bat because they cruise up and down the the river clicking and doing the echolocation calls, um, collecting all the little insects that come off the stream at night. Mm. So the streams are sort of like their little highways almost. Yeah, feeding highways. And you found them, uh, I mean recently you found them even inside someone's house. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, we've, um, we had a call from someone that said that they have a bat 
Um, up under their veranda and I kind of went, uh, is it really? And then they sent me photos and yeah, it was. And we went out and had a look and um, this little bat has been there apparently eight to nine months and um, we were really surprised. Um, I contacted a doc and they said um, that it's very unusual for this species but where there's limited roosting availability then they'll just go find somewhere that's nice and sheltered. And is that, do you think that's partly because they've done the predator-free thing so that they actually are reasonably safe hiding under these sort of urban structures? Yeah, in that particular area in Paramahoe, there's been a lot of um, pest control there for the past decades, so I think that that has really helped so that the, that the numbers of bats are built up there so much that we have um, about... We did a survey there a few years ago with some contractors and... Um, we had 1,500 bat passes over 10 nights, so that's a lot of bat activity. So that shows us that there is a lot of bats around that area. Because mm. obviously the bats are considered critically endangered, but we do, do we actually have a good handle on how many there are? No, not at all. We just don't have enough population uh, data to, to find out what's happening, and this is why we um, started the, the bat survey and tracking work that we did in the Watakura Ranges, which was to try and find out what was happening with the population in the Watakura Ranges. Because my biggest fear is that because these bats live up to 30 years, um, that we were just seeing the old male bats flying around mm. um, and that the females had been victims to predation at the maternity roost. We were really pleased when we, we've caught a couple of post-breeding females um, in our last lot of summer um, catching, so we're going to try again next summer and um, put little transmitters on them and see if we can follow them back to where they're going back to their other maternity roosts. Do you think that's sort of some encouragement that sort of, you know, over these last 10 years or so we've discovered these bats can tolerate the urban environment? I mean, that sort of would seem to be good news for their long-term survival. It would seem that way, but as I said, these bats live for 30 years, so these bats may be just hanging on and the populations may not be breeding. So we need to really look into that to see um, if these bats are living in isolation or whether they're able to breed between the different forest fragments. And so there's a lot of really important information that we're still lacking that we need to um, look into to actually help save these bats because although these little forest fragments don't seem important, especially around Auckland where there's a the housing problem and we're expanding our city, um, these bats are stuck in these little tiny little forest fragments so that means that we have to try and find ways of having them live in these areas and we're still having our housing around them as well. And as you say, still linking those fragments together so that you don't, you know, if you have one problem in one little patch of forest it doesn't wipe a whole population out. That's right and that's why we're trying to work on at the Auckland Council is a northwest wild link which is trying to create a continuous green corridor from the Waitakere Ranges across to the Hauraki Gulf Islands so that at least birds and bats can, can link between the different uh, forest fragments so that they can breed more successfully and, and travel across these areas safely. Are you sort of surprised by how excited people get about bats? Because I... You know, I ran across this sort of bat fun day they were holding and, you know, there were about 40 people all sort of, you know, very happily chattering away and looking up at the sky and everything and, and you don't really think of that kind of excitement about bats. No, no. I've been really surprised that people have been so excited about bats and wanted to know more about bats and get 
bat detectors and look for them in backyards and schools and golf courses. We had a bat fun day recently and um, over 300 people turned up and we were really surprised that... 300, really? Yeah, it was wow. just amazing that so many people are interested in bats and just want to find out more about them. I guess it's, kind of, it's sort of the mystery factor of them too because, you know, you might, you've probably seen a tui or, you know, a weka or something if you've gone into the bush at some stage or, you know, wood pigeons and stuff like that. Most people never, ever seen a bat or no, even think no. they could. Exactly, and um, our bat walks book out faster than an Adele concert. You know, they're gone in about 20 minutes. And it's just really cool that because people just want to go out into these bat walks. And people are just amazed to see these bats. And um, it's, just, it's just a real special experience because most people don't even go out in the bush at night. So to see these little tiny bats is, is a real special moment. I mean, they do provide some ecosystem services too. I mean, they're, they're, I hear they're pretty big fans of mosquitoes, which is um, nice to know. <laughs> Yeah, and over in the States, they've um, done all sorts of research that shows that these long-tailed bats, uh, or not their, their micro-bats anyway, are able to provide um, agricultural pest control for them and in, in, in their crops. Um, they actually put um, bat roost boxes against their house mm. so they control the mosquitoes in the summer as well. So I think that Overseas, they've, they've got the right idea, so we just need to try and get better at living with our long-tailed bats. Wants to get a good recording. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, William. That story was produced by William Ray, and thanks, too, to everyone who took part in it. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 30th of August 2018. Our webpage is rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, and you can do all sorts of things there. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter, find our contact details, and browse through our very large audio archive, which goes back to 2008. Search for bats, for example, and you'll find stories about our other bat species, the short-tailed bat. We are RNZ Our Changing World on your favourite podcast provider, and you can also find us on the RNZ app. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. Bye for now. Namihi. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.